Hi, I'm Peter Dixon, and you're listening to Best of Belfast. Wow, you went for the, the full whack on that one. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll do another one for you. You ready? Yeah. I'm Peter Dixon, and you're listening to Best of Belfast. Well, my first memory was uh, when I was very young. I suppose I must have been about uh, four or five. I mean, it's hard to tell because it's so long ago. <laughs> but I remember um, sitting in my uh, in our family home in uh, in Dundonald in Belfast, and uh, my father had just bought one of these uh, these radios which had um, valves inside it, and I remember okay. sitting listening to. Um, listening to the BBC. I think it was the the home service. This was pre-Radio 4 times. Um, So this would have been probably the late 50s, early 60s. And I remember listening to uh, these wonderful kind of fruity stentorian voices coming out of this (laughs) radio set and, uh, and peering into the back of the radio set to see these... I didn't know what they were then, but these <laughs> valves had this wonderful orange glow to them, you know, and uh, uh, they had impossible-sounding German names typed on them. And I just thought this... I, I, as a child, I remember looking in the back of the radio thinking, where are these people? I can't see them. <laughs> and and I suppose that's my very first kind of professional encounter. Well, not professional, my very first encounter with radio as such. And uh, I'm only guessing that, that uh, those early experiences listening to that wonderful radio set must have um, somehow sparked in my imagination mm. a desire to, you know, go into that world at some point in the future because that's an, entirely been my career trajectory ever since wow. working working initially in radio then television and then in all forms of audio so that early memory i suppose takes me right back to the very beginnings of what i do now wow yeah it's a certainly a very foreboding first memory considering the career you've gone on to, to live it's absolutely fantastic so just for the listeners who've jumped in thank you very much really really appreciate you being here you're listening to the best of belfast we are the podcast that celebrates northern ireland and the incredible people in it and you may have already recognized today's guest or recognized his voice because he is one of the top three most iconic voices of the decade and that is the one and only peter dixon so you may have heard peter dixon uh his voice on x factor britain's got talent he's been doing this for peter i just read on your website was 42 years is that right (laughs) i've I've stopped i've stopped counting i don't want to go there that's absolutely incredible and you know within those years you have 100 tv shows 60 tv channels 30 plus games and over thirty thousand radio and tv commercials i know is it any wonder i'm knackered I think that number 30,000, I want to come back to that because that's just mind-blowing, but you were the BBC's youngest ever TV presenter. You've gone on to voice things like Domino's, E4, Nickelodeon. You host many amazing events, the Queen's Birthday, among many, many other things. But Peter, I just want to thank you very much for being here. And let's go back. Let's go back to, you know, you were listening to the radio. You clearly were captured by that. What happened next as such when did you think that actually i'm going to really pursue this as a career interesting question i think it's probably that was the the spark if you like that was the, the as a child i thought that i got obsessed with radio i used to listen to it all the time uh, right from those very early days right up to when just before i left school uh to go to university and in those between that period and going to university i listened to the radio a lot in my bedroom late at night, I'd have little earphones in. I'd listen to wonderful uh, stations from not just in the UK, but far afield. And listen to foreign language stations and everything. I was wow. just obsessed with radio. And um, then I went to university. I went to Queen's University in Belfast. I did a degree in psychology. And, fantastic. Uh, during the, during, yeah, I mean, I've forgotten everything I learned. But it was a, fant- <laughs> it was a fantastic experience, you know. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. But uh, I, um, during that period, just before I went to university, uh, I was um, going to the, uh, you know, because I was looking at which university to go to. So I was look- going around a few. And my visit to Queen's, I happened to ask about radio or film TV societies and they pointed me to a, a house somewhere down near the university where they had the um, what's called the Queen's University Film Society which is mm. one of the one of many societies that the university has and I got talking to a guy there called Brian Drysdale who was a BBC television cameraman and he had just made a homemade documentary you know, just just for himself yeah. uh, to show to whoever wanted to see it 
and he was looking just coincidentally for somebody to uh, do the narration for it, to voice it. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is one of these sort of uh, <laughs> these these moments, you know. Uh, and I said, "Well, I'll have a go because I've I fancy myself as yeah. I've been doing drama at school. And just, I'll have a go for it uh, at it for you." So I I voiced this uh, short documentary, and he said that was really great. Thank you so much. He said. Um, do you know, the, actually, the, the BBC in Belfast, he said, are looking for somebody to uh, uh, read the late night news. And cl- these are the days when Radio Ulster or BBC Radio Ulster, uh, as it was, uh, closed down at night and there was no sustaining through the night service. Mm. So I said, he said, here's a, here's a number. Call this guy up anyway and um, see, what, see what happens. So I called this guy up. It was a guy called Michael Bagley, who was the BBC Northern Ireland uh, presentation editor. And I said, I didn't tell him how old I was. I was actually 18. <laughs> I sounded a bit older. <laughs> I might even have been 17 at that point. Anyway, so I said, uh, yeah, I've heard you're looking for somebody. Can I come in and uh, audition? He said, yeah. So I went down to audition for him and uh, he threw a few uh, news scripts at me and some continuity announcement scripts, which I read for him. And uh, he said, thanks very much. Um, and he said, "Well, how, what are you? What's, what are you doing at the moment?" I said, "Well, I'm, I'm a student. I didn't tell him I was still at school. <laughs> I wasn't strictly lying." And bear in mind, these were the days before you know we had um, uh, you know health and uh, not health. We had uh, human resources department. Yes, of course. So anyway, so my. <laughs> About a week later, I, I, th- this telephone call came into the house. My mother took it, and she said, it's for you. I said, oh, it's, she said, it's the BBC. <laughs> this was on a Wednesday, and, she said, and I said, hello. And he said, it's Michael Bagley here. We want uh, to know if you would like to offer you this job part-time. He said, um, you know, in the evenings, and uh, can you start on Monday? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I said, of course I can. Put the phone down. And I thought, what the hell have I just said? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, that's how it started. So all the way through my university university degree, four-year degree course, I was uh, walking from Queen's University in Belfast um, all the way down into Ormo Avenue and uh, mm. more, more or less every day reading news, doing all, all, odd kinds of things, and uh, and then eventually started to do TV news as well. Wow. Um, I did a show called Scene Around Six, which was the the tea time news update show for BBC Northern Ireland for Northern Ireland News. And bear in mind, this was the, the height of the troubles, yeah. uh, Matthew. Uh, so, you know, it was a really, really difficult time for everybody. And uh, and I was, um, you know, in the thick of that. And there were lots of people there who I'm still in touch with, people like uh, Jeremy Paxman and Kate Aidy and uh, Nicholas Witchell, all those kind of, um, you know, uh, stellar journalists cut their teeth in the newsroom at BBC Belfast. And I was around at that time as well. So that was... Quite a, a baptism of fire for everybody, yeah. including me, you know, and um, I loved it, though. I absolutely loved it. It was a, a really great experience to be able to do that while doing a degree at the same time. So I had a head start on everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So do you, do you start your 42 years old from 17? Is that what yes. it all? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you do. I mean, that is, yeah. that's a head start, you know, because most people, you know, they'll go to get their degree and then next thing you know, they're 23, 24. But you yeah. really did. Like yeah. that gave you yeah. such a great jump. Um, if we were meeting on under better circumstances i would be interviewing you actually we have a, a recording studio in ormo baths which has been completely converted into like a, a co-working space so, i'll get out of here get yeah. out of here oh my goodness like you will absolutely love to see it next time you're over just drop me an email because i'd love to show you around because it is such I'd love to see an that. incredible building with so much history as you would know but completely reinvigorated and completely transformed so yeah you, Do you know why i'm, to see I'm that. so I'm so pleased to hear that because that is the very place that I learned to swim. Is it really? In the Ormo Baths, yes. <laughs> so my, don't, st- tell me, don't tell me your office is in the deep end. I was just about to say, so the, the, the studio, it has kind of like a, you know, like a glass window like a lot of studios do. And we look out over where the, the swimming pool was. Really, I'm being serious. Well, that's where I learned to swim. How amazing is that? <laughs> Incredible. Uh, before we kind of go forward, I know I've already said let's go back, but I do want to go back just a little bit. And that is, I want to dig a little bit deeper down into this obsession, this passion with radio. What was it about radio that really, was it some sort of a connection? You know, why did you really have such a draw to it, do you think? I think I've just got a greater, I've, I've got a great imagination. I like, and, and radio is the perfect place to exercise that imagination because mm. radio is, you know, the theatre of imagination. And uh, whether you're listening to drama or poetry or you know just listening to uh, a documentary, um, 
I don't know whether everybody's the same as me, but I I create pictures in my own mm. head of what's happening. So it was it was it was immediately ob- obvious to me that the, here was a medium that I could have fun with working in because I could create these wonderful scenes and and be in, in the most amazing places just using sound. Um, uh, whereas if you if you're working in in television or in film you've physically got to create that environment that world mm. um more so it's done um you know in the virtual world nowadays in in particularly in film where you've got um you know uh huge um sets or uh, environments that are that are constructed virtually so that's yeah. a lot cheaper and easier to do but back then it was you had to build physical sets and that was that was where the expense was whereas radio it was immediate it was uh, very very easy to uh, create a world using sound effects and your voice, and nobody knew what you looked like either. So you, could, you, could, you didn't have to you didn't have to dress up or wear uh, or wear a costume or get makeup on. So yeah. it was just for me, it was just a fantastically quick, easy, and uh, really limitless kind of uh, environment to work in, where you could just do anything at a, at a drop at a drop of a hat. Amazing, um, and um, that's why I loved it so much, and that's why I stayed with it for so long. Yeah, uh, when I, when I worked first at Radio and then moved to London where I worked uh, as a radio uh, continuity announcer on BBC Radio 2 Um, and at the same time um, about three years after I went there I started working with Steve Wright on Radio 1 again indulging my passion for creating characters with voices you know and uh, and, and creating uh, pictures using using sound so interesting you were like a a 17 year old batman of the the audio waves (laughs) i was really (laughs) i was a rebel without a cause (laughs) one of my favorite authors he's a guy called paulo coelho and he wrote a book called the alchemist and it sold you know however many trillion billion copies worldwide and there's been plenty of people directors who've tried to pick it up and turn it into a movie but he won't let them and he says he won't let them because he enjoys trusting the reader to imagine and come up with the the pictures in their in their heads themselves and so i think you're right there is something very special about audio i would say there's something quite intimate to audio as well it's, it's extremely it's, as a medium it's extremely intimate and it really infuriates me when i hear people on radio uh referring to their audience as everyone or hello everyone or hmm. um you're talking to one person, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, there may be two people listening in the room. There may be just one person listening in a car on the way home from work. But you're talking to one person. So um, I, that infuriates me when people start to pluralize their audience in that way on radio. Um, I think it's very, very important to, to keep it intimate because it is an intimate medium. Uh, and and, and that's, that's what one of its strengths, I think, is that uh, when I worked on Radio 2, I, I started doing shows through the night um from on bbc radio 2 from midnight till four in the morning or something it's it's the worst possible time to be working (laughs) for most people but i absolutely loved it because there's a certain relationship with that late night audience there's a Mm. siege mentality at work people are trying to get through the darkest hours you know and absolutely uh, because you're talking to them and they're they're, most of them invariably are listening alone be be it that there may be a, a long distance lorry driver perhaps or somebody who's ill and can't sleep and they're listening to you and you, you are their their friend their their mm. only voice in the darkness and so that kind of relationship at night is so intense and i used to get letters from people from all over the united kingdom um some of them had very tricky handwriting <laughs> while driving and, perhaps and, and, <laughs> perhaps i hope not uh, but the the, uh, the general sort of feeling was that this was uh, a really you know uh, for them it was really important and and it was uh, so intimate for them that um, you know that made it worthwhile doing it yeah but the interesting thing about that is you know that relationship is while you did get feedback it was somewhat delayed feedback you know whether it be a week or a month down the line but in the moment, it's very much a one-sided relationship. What, what I mean by that is it's you in the studio and you're talking and you can't hear anything back. Has it ever felt lonely? Any of the work no, that you've done? Uh, no. I, uh, well, in those days, I mean, in fact, even nowadays, uh, when, you, when you're on the radio, if you're a presenter or a DJ, uh, you are never alone. You, you've always got a producer or a, a, an engineer on the other side of the glass. So what I used to do was... Um, you know, talk to them or or visualize one person sitting opposite me in the studio where I could, you know, keep it real, keep it personal. Ah. Uh, and so visualization is a big key 
nowadays for me as, as a commercial voice artist or a narrator of, of a documentary or even doing a corporate video. You know, I always, um, and I teach this stuff as well, I always tell people, you know, always know who your audience is. And when you know who your audience is and you can visualize them strongly, you can see what they're wearing, you can see what they look like, uh, then you can talk. And mm. only then can you communicate at the level that you need to. So I, I, I think that's one of the things I learned when I was on radio is you have to talk to a person, be it a real person on the other side of the glass, or visualize somebody that you're talking to and visualize their reactions to what you're saying as well, if you can, if you can do that. Mm. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm taking notes here and I just... Uh, scribble down and underlined and circled talk to one person and whatever you said about don't pluralize your your audience I just went no what have I done I'm sure I've done it plenty of times like but really I think that's that's really really strong advice because I'm interested in the relationships that audio can build and so yeah I I mean I've never thought of it in that way but it, it totally makes sense so I went on uh your voiceover training website uh gravy for the brain and I was really, really impressed with what I saw. I mean, it looks this looks to be kind of like the the number one place for any voice artist to go. So I'd love to hear when you set that up, why, and then just like if you could touch on how successful yeah. it's been because it seems to be an absolute slam dunk. Well, first of all, thank you for that, that ringing endorsement. It's really, really nice of you to taking the time to look at it. Um, it's a, a, a real work of love for me and my business mm. partner, Hugh Edwards. We got together to start this about seven years ago on the basis that he was a or is still a voice director in gaming and hmm. uh, he was um, getting more and more frustrated with the the fact that the pool of voices he was using to uh, work with on games was uh, relatively small hmm. and he was ending up using the same actors time and time again um, and so out of largely self-interest from his point of view he spoke to me about this and I said well why don't we create a course you know um, a standalone bricks and mortar course that voice actors or any actors who want to learn how to get into gaming can come along to and we we held about we did about 17 of these courses over a period of a year or two uh, in London uh, on a Saturday all day Saturday it was it was a long intense course and everybody who came on it enjoyed it they their eyes were open because voicing for gaming is so different to voicing for commercials or for corporate or documentary narration or whatever it might be. It's a, a really specific discipline that you need to learn in order to enter the market to do it. Um, and I won't bore you with the detail here, but just take it from me, it is extremely different. And is it, this, so, is it the storytelling? Is it the creation of characters? What is it that kind of sets it apart? It's all of that. And it, okay. it's, it's, um, it's, there are specific things technically that you need to do as gotcha. a voice actor and need to know about, about voice projection and um, knowing how the audio is treated after you've finished because the engineers need to compress the audio in such mm. a way that, that it's uh, able to be um, equal, equalized across the whole a game, wow. uh, so there's no, there's very little dynamic range in, in gaming voices. Um, so you need to know a lot of this stuff and how to read off spreadsheets and how to how to quickly change character. Um, you know, ten o'clock in, in the morning, you walk into the studio, the producer hands you this spreadsheet, literally is a spreadsheet with little boxes, little cells with with words typed in them, <laughs> and you have to. He says, "This is a this is a zombie, and he's aged about he's aged 120, uh, and, and his arms fallen off. Go," <laughs> and so. You now we teach people to have this kind of uh I call it the quiver of arrows you know it's the little box on your back that has all these characters that you've worked on in private and practiced over the years and you just file them away so if a producer says can you do me a west country bumpkin I could pull one of those out of the box uh, or can you do me a mid a midwestern farmer yes I can pull that out of the box you're like absolutely high old 30 or 40 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we teach them how to how to you know, how to get range uh, how to do uh, how to be yeah how to be sound younger how to sound older how to project more how to project less how to uh, uh, you know, slow down, speed up, pausing, all, all that stuff is 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 not all of it is unique, of course, to gaming, but a lot of it is. So, so we did these bricks and mortar courses, and people loved it. And then we suddenly thought to ourselves, well, they wanted to do more of them, and we thought people from abroad wanted to do them, and they we couldn't they couldn't afford to come over here. So we um, we took the decision to put it online, and uh, it just took off from there. The wow. the whole. We are now, uh, I'm so delighted and proud to say, and we have a lovely team working on this back in our headquarters in Banbury in Oxfordshire. Uh, we've got about 23 people um, who work on the, in the business now, and we are the world's largest 
uh, online voice acting training academy, you know, anywhere. And it's, um, it's growing exponentially. It's really, really heartening to see so many actors, not just beginners, but people who are professional in the business who come to us and join us because we have so many resources from yes. content uh, system, uh, customer relationship management software, and we've got all kinds of indexes and databases and yeah. uh, advice, and, and we've got you know seven or eight um, webinars a week. We've got 17 bespoke courses uh, that you can take on any subject. Uh, so it's... Yeah, it's a it's a one stop shop for anybody who's interested in voice acting, uh, or, or who ever even had a slight interest in maybe finding out about what it was like, what it might be like to be a voice actor. And particularly at this time, here we are talking, you know, in March uh, twenty twenty, uh, in the midst of a a viral pandemic, where everybody's stuck at home. Yeah. You know, I can't think of a of a better, um, you know occupation than spending time in your own in your own studio servicing clients around the world without having to go anywhere so absolutely I mean, i've been i've been doing this for years now so i'm quite used to the isolation yeah. so it's not a, such a total shock to me yeah yeah but um it's uh yeah i can't i'm just so fortunate that's great yeah and i mean like as someone who's self-employed like i was saying to you before you know i start off as a copywriter and now i'm you know kind of making my foray into podcasting and, and all that good stuff but i would just love for something like this to exist for copywriters because even like it's so practical down to the t where you know you can even like send invoices and stuff through it like that's the stuff that people don't think about that you need you know it's the the business side to your practice i think is, is really important but i read a great book one of my favorite authors a guy called seth godin and he wrote this book called tribes he made this point that you know, back in the day, tribes were kind of defined based on geography and then the internet's come along and it's allowed people from all over the world to connect who otherwise couldn't connect. And what I love about this program and this kind of uh, platform here is you have a very niche, skilled set of workers, voiceover artists, who, you know, yep. if, you, if you look at Northern Ireland, how many voice artists are there in Northern Ireland? It's, it's a small number. And then you you know you, number, you do yeah. the same in France, you do the same in Germany, but you add all these people together, and it's a large amount of people who are looking for a way to connect and looking for a way to learn from each other. And you've just stepped in and you've created that, and so I think that's that's really interesting, but also really exciting. I was looking at um at some statistics the other day about voice acting, and uh, was astonished to see that um, the voice acting industry is worth four point four billion dollars annually. <laughs> Whoa. And ninety percent, nineteen percent of that business is in the USA. That's eight hundred million dollars of business uh, in voiceovers is in the USA, uh, and of that uh, eight hundred million dollars, fifty-eight percent is within the entertainment industry. Nineteen mm. percent uh, for with advertising, eighteen percent in the corporate sphere, and five percent in education. You know things like um, explainer videos and so forth. Yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, it, it really is a huge industry. Uh, and uh, we are now, uh, we have territory controllers on the ground in North America, Canada, South America. We have um, France, Spain, uh, Arabia, the Arabian countries, uh, Australia and New Zealand currently with more countries coming online because wow. there's definitely a need to train people in this world and uh, there's more than enough work for everybody so it's um it's certainly one of the one of the growing uh, sectors in in, in industry and in, in the entertainment sector certainly yeah. so i can wrap my head around how you know uh, an aspiring belfast voiceover artist can start to get a couple of gigs with small businesses and maybe even pivot their way into video what i uh, into radio sorry what i can't figure out in my head is then how do you make the jump from like you were in radio to then some of these bigger clients these bigger jobs these bigger opportunities how did you personally make that leap if that makes sense yes of course yeah it is a leap and but it wasn't in one bound it was over, <laughs> over oh my god no it was over a long period of time so when i was at radio 2 i was at radio 2 for 10 years right uh and uh i um Towards the end of those 10 years, I was beginning to feel a little stale. I was, I was doing the same job. It was great fun. I was working with people like Kenny Everett and Steve Wright and, you know, John Peel and, and 
all the radio greats. I, I met them and worked with them all. But I was still, f- I was finding after 10 years, I was repeating myself. Mm. And I was starting to feel a little stale. Uh, so I had uh, an opportunity came along for um, me to present a, a radio show in London, a breakfast show on um, Lord Hanson had a new studio called a new radio station called Melody Radio. And he I went along and auditioned for that and was offered the job. So I, I jumped ship at that point. Um, and I realized then that I had to make up some of my day with doing other things because that show finished at 10 a.m. <laughs> so, so I started, I started to, to, started to do uh, some uh, commercial radio work for local radio stations around the country. And these were, this was the day before you could actually phone it in, as it were, because nowadays we just sit, we sit in, I can sit in my booth like we are talking now and send my audio to anywhere in the world in a second. Yeah. Uh, but in those days, of course, ISDN wasn't there. There was no broadband connectivity whatsoever. So in order to have my voice on your radio commercial, I had to physically drive to you. So I was <laughs> finishing my show at 10 a.m. in the morning, getting in my car and driving to Bristol or, oh, or Newcastle or Edinburgh. <laughs> or no, not Edinburgh. That was a bit too far. Uh, I, I, furthest, I, furthest, I think, oh, it was, was Newcastle upon Tyne. Wow. And, um, and I'd go to Birmingham and, and Essex and all, all points northeast, south and west. So... That was what, that was where I really cut my teeth because I was yeah. I became a very good driver and I became <laughs> uh, very good at voicing commercials. Uh, and then when that show ended, uh, as it did after three years, I then went completely freelance because by, by then I had my feet comfortably under the table, doing lots of commercials, lots of corporate work, and um, and still doing stuff for for Radio One. So it was it was brilliant. It was uh, so I was I was off and running. Amazing. So is that uh, where you started knocking out some of those 30,000 then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that goes right back to when I was at uh, university. I was, do- I was the, I'll tell you, I was the voice of the Belfast Telegraph. Hey, where are you? <laughs> on downtown. <laughs> <laughs> Get at the tonight, Belfast Telegraph. <laughs> uh, so um, I was, I was the voice of the Telegraph for years and years. And uh, so that was, uh, downtown was was where I started doing commercials, um, and uh, that was great fun. But that was in person. I had to drive down to uh, Newton Hards and do it at the Caltonga Industrial Estate, <laughs> and uh, it was great. So I'm still there, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I loved that. That was great. So um, yeah, the thirty thousand commercials. It does seem a lot, doesn't it? Oof. But the, the, these are uh, a lot of those were just banged out in one take. You know? Sure. So it's uh, you, if you're doing. You know, as, as you did in those days, on a typical session, you might do thirty radio commercials mm-hmm. in one afternoon. Uh, you know, because you're the only voice there for that week. You just do a week's worth in one go. Yeah, you can easily see how those figures can mount up over uh, over that oh, period yeah. of time. Absolutely. So, how do you? You know, you've gone freelance. You are doing a lot of commercials, and you, you already had a big back catalogue of commercials at that point as well. How do you start then? refining which jobs you say yes to and which jobs you say no to? <laughs> As a freelance, <laughs> one of my big problems, one of my big problems is uh, <laughs> I can't say no. I, just, I actually say yes to everything. There's a great book written, I don't know if you read it, called Yes Man. It was made into a movie, starred Jim Carrey. Yes, yeah. um, and uh, I, I read that book years ago. And I, just, I laughed all the way through it because I thought that's me because <laughs> I just say yes to everything. As a freelance, I think it's a freelance disease, you know. You never think, unless it's something really bad that you, yeah. you, you don't want to be involved with, whether it's, you know, um, you know, whatever the product might be, or if you if you have a conscientious objection to something, uh, then yes, you'll turn it down. Um, and the only other reason you'd turn it down if they weren't paying you well enough. Sure. But uh, as far as most things are concerned, I say yes to more, more or less everything I, my agent or I come across, unless it's something I, I haven't got time to do or I don't want to do particularly for whatever reason. But um, yeah, it's the curse of the freelance, though. You just, you, you never know where your next meal's coming from. And honestly, I've been doing this for 40 years. And I'm still terrified. There's not it'll stop um uh, i think somebody said to me the other day when are you going to retire and i said well this business will retire me before i retire it yeah and i think it's as a voice artist it's one of the it's a business that you can uh you know be in till you drop dead because absolutely there's always going to be a role for you. Yeah. You, you. You know, your voice will age over time. I don't sound the same now as I did when I was 25. But 
that's not that's not a problem because I I'm not going to be doing advertising nightclubs or young people's products. I'm going to be <laughs> advertising more more expensive more expensive <laughs> services and products now, uh, and and talking in a different way to different audiences. So, yeah, it's one of those things that you one of these jobs that you can actually carry on for as yeah. long as you want to. So this is probably a very difficult question to answer, but do you think that your voice grows in value the older you? get like like clients aside portfolio aside do you think that older voices are more in demand or more valuable than say you know your 17 year old voice i think so i don't know but i don't really know it depends the the, the culture changes so much we are very much now a youth orientated culture the millennials totally. the millennium uh uh, millenniums, millenniums are in charge of uh, of the wheelhouse yeah. now, so they are very much dictating uh, the digital landscape, advertising, music, popular culture of all sorts. Everybody, anybody under thirty now is really, you know, having the time of their lives, and or should be. And uh, older voices, uh, again, you know, the opportunities change and shift. You know, speak to Morgan Freeman and see if he he's running out of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like fine wine. You know, it just gets better and yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I don't think I don't think age age is is, is relevant. I think it's um, it's one of those things that uh, I think uh, none of us can do anything about. I mean, growing older is is a part of life, and so you've got to just uh, you know adapt and change and reinvent yourself from time mm. to time. So are there any ways that you try to protect your voice? Because, you know, if you kind of put your business studies, your GCSE business study glasses on, you know, your voice is, you know, one of the greatest assets that you have. So how do you kind of go about protecting it? Well, there are certain things you can do, obviously, you know, um, try not to get a cold, uh, <laughs> which is uh, one of the one of the things that I try not to get. Uh, how do you try not to get a cold? Well, um, I've been sort of practicing good hand washing techniques for years, and uh, you were ahead of the curve, <laughs> particularly, particularly during the winter time. Uh, you know, just keep away from people who are obviously infected, and uh, and wash your hands frequently, and um, just try and stay healthy by. I, I like to get half an hour of a good stiff walk every day, so I go up a hill uh, and back down again, keep my lungs in good working order, mm. and I and drink plenty and plenty of water is another great thing you can do. People say, do you do you gargle with whiskey? Or <laughs> I wish I wish I did gargle with whiskey. Uh, I could get that on the National Health. I'd be doing really well. Uh, no, I, I think um, no, just gargling with water is great. Not gargling with just just drinking plenty of water. You can gargle with it if you like, uh, but uh, water is the the oil in the vocal engine. So Keeping yourself well hydrated, keeping those vocal folds uh, well lubricated, will prevent uh, any injury from occurring. Keep you, keep you, uh, keeping you able to talk mm. and be uh, vocally active for as long as you can. Yeah, is there a particular type of work you enjoy the most? You know, do you enjoy the kind of walking in and doing a quick one, two, three take of a commercial? Do you like longer form audiobooks? Do you enjoy losing yourself in kind of the the spreadsheet yeah. of gaming, or you know, what mm. do you prefer? Interesting question. I, I've always been a, a bit of a jack of all trades in that, to that extent for one very good reason. And that reason is that if you were to sort of become wedded and known for just one thing, you know, I used to do lots of promos, for instance. I worked on BBC One, BBC Two, Channel Four, E4, Nickelodeon, uh, lots of different channels that I worked on. And now I hardly do any promo work at all. <laughs> So if I had just been a promo voice, my God, I, you, you, you know, I'd be starving by now. I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't have supported my family. Yeah. So I took the view that I wanted a nice, rather like investing, you know, when you invest your money or the way you should invest your money is to have a nice broad portfolio of investments mm. in various different sectors. So I've invested my time in getting to be fairly good at promos, uh, uh, animation voices, uh, corporate sounding voices. Uh, gaming and uh, commercials, and those are the uh, those are the areas I mainly work in. The only thing I've never done, and I I don't know whether I've got the, the I don't know if I've got the patience for it, is to read an audio book. Yeah, um, that is God knows why, but most novice voiceover artists I speak to, that's the first thing they want to do. And I always <laughs> say to them, that's the most difficult thing to yeah. do because uh, you know it's long, it's a long old slog, you know, particularly if you're reading, say, Harry Potter, like like. 
like um, uh, Stephen Fry did the yeah. whole series. God knows how he did that. My goodness. So yeah. it's it's a, it's a, it's a real slog. It's uh, physically very demanding. Uh, you've got to remember the voices of the characters as you go along. Oof. So you may encounter a character on page five, and that character may not appear again until page oh, seventy. Man. So you've got to you've got to have a color coded chart like a spreadsheet saying. Uh, and have vo- vocal references for every character in the book so that when you come to him again or her again, you can go back to that audio reference uh, labeled number 17 in pink and you go, <laughs> that's that one. You play it back to yourself. So that's how I did it. So this is why it's so tedious and slow. Crazy. And uh, also, you know, unless you're a really star name reading an audio book, it's possibly one of the worst paid gigs yeah. of all voiceover work that you can possibly do but if you enjoy reading books out loud then go for it because that is if you like that sort of thing it's uh, very very creatively satisfying but yeah. uh, it won't pay the bills for very long oh man i would I hate to have to do like a a told story like war and peace <laughs> not not just because of the length but i mean there's like gotta be 200 different characters you're like no i've lost track like forget yes. the quiver on your back you have like a whole like caravan of like characters <laughs> i know i know we teach uh, our students this the pad technique the pad technique is pitch edge accent and defect so with pitch fairly obvious up and down higher lower uh age you can age your voice uh, get very very old you can get very old uh, accent you can have any accent you like uh, uh, uh age accent and defect of course you can introduce a lisp into your voice yeah uh, or any kind of defect you like uh, and so b- by dialing those four things up and down um, then you can create an infinite range of characters so uh, you know you never run out of, out of characters doing using that technique but at the same time i take your point war and peace my goodness you know, <laughs> you're driven demented with that yeah, I know. It's like, how big would the invoice have to be to ever say yes? <laughs> very, very big indeed. Very big. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, look, Peter, there's a, a couple of stock questions that uh, I have the opportunity to ask every single guest. And we've been doing this uh, since episode zero. And now I think this is around 120, which is really, really exciting. And um, one of them is slightly difficult for a Northern Irish person to answer, but this is why I think it's important to ask. And it's really simply this. Out of all of your experience and life journey so far, is there like a standout moment or achievement that you would define as your most successful? Well, um, there are so many sort of high points to my career. You know, you mentioned a few of them in the introduction. Uh, But there are two, I think, one that I'm particularly proud of. One is... uh, giving voice to uh, in 2013 i gave a voice to a much loved television character sooty and uh, <laughs> he'd been on air since 1952 and had never spoken a word wow. and in 2013 um harry h corbett uh well not harry h harry corbett i think it was rang me up and he said we've got an episode in which sooty speaks and we'd like you to, to be his wow voice. what a gig <laughs> flip me no now, pressure <laughs> now, probably not many people saw it but for me you know growing up uh watching sooty and then being giving a voice to him was such an honor and and uh, and a thrill uh so that was um that was one and the second one was again this this is a, an interesting one because it's never to be repeated and never will be repeated was uh, I was the voice of the London Olympic Games in 2012 wow uh, and uh, my voice was all over the main stadium and, and all the other stadia in London but I drew the real short straw for the live work. Uh, I was invited to be the voice and commentator oh of the beach, beach volleyball in Horse Guards Parade. <laughs> uh, you should have seen my wife's face when I told her. Yeah, I that. bet. So, it's like, uh, Peter, we need to talk about this gig. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that was that was actually great fun, but very tough because it, yeah. it was an outdoor venue. Uh, the weather was fantastic that summer, as you will remember, and um, the atmosphere inside that stadium. And in fact, throughout the whole of London, I've never seen or heard the city so happy, so vibrant, wow. and so positive as it was in the summer of 2012. And standing as I was on the touchline of the World Volleyball Championship court uh, and um, and seeing that at very close quarters was an absolute thrill and an honour to to do that, and I absolutely loved every second of it. So those mm. are the two, I suppose, two standouts if I, if I were to pick any. Yeah. Do you enjoy public speaking? Um, I do to a little bit of it. I do. I don't say I enjoy it that much. I'm I'm 
getting better at it. I was never yeah. very good at it. In fact, I was terrified for years of a live audience speaking in front of even five or ten people we used mm. to make me break out in a sweat uh, because Absolutely. I'd always, even though I was quite at home in front of a microphone talking to, you know, 15 million people, uh, I couldn't see them <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and they couldn't see me. So that was fine. Uh, but speaking in front of people is a, is a real gift and a real honor and a real um, uh, really brilliant thing to do if you can do it. And I started doing it and I was so terrible at it, but I was con- I was committed to it. I wanted to get better. So I did more and more and more. I do more hosting than after dinner speaking. Mm. Um, although when I do my hosting, I often do maybe five or six minutes yeah. of a little spiel at the beginning just to warm them up. And they, they genuinely like that. But it's um, the, when it's done well, when you see it done really well, and there are a few people I've seen who are just breathtakingly good at it. I, I would never claim to be an after dinner speaker, mm. or or even a, a, a brilliant uh, speaker of any any type. But I do, I do enjoy it, and I have no fear of it now. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how you know I think a lot of people would assume that it automatically transfers over, but it's a completely different kind of uh, different art, isn't it? It's uh, interesting. It is. This is a I brand do, new. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I do work a lot in live events, so I do. I'm what they call the voice of God at, uh, <laughs> at a lot of big events. It's quite a good um, thing for the CV. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the voice of God, and so I do. Uh, you know, big events uh, from the London 2012 Olympics to big uh, fundraisers and corporate events and award ceremonies in places like the Grosvenor House in London on Park Lane and all the big London venues. I do a lot of that, mm. and that's fine because they usually stick me around the back or up in the balcony <laughs> somewhere in the darkness where they can't see me. So that's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you have to forgive me. This is the first time trying this question out, but it, it, it fits in so well here. I'm going to give it a spin, okay? Um, if you could give a TED Talk about any topic, do you know roughly what you would like to to say? Yes, I think... I don't think that what I'm going to talk about, what I would talk about, is particularly um, pertinent or common to the world that I work in. But... Perhaps it is more so because as voice actors and as actors generally, uh, we get uh, rejected on a daily basis. Mm. So I, I still do auditions for, for clients around the world and, and, and frequently never get picked. Absolutely. Uh, you never know why. You never know why. Uh, There's probably not because anybody's better than you. It's just because whatever somebody else did fitted in the producer's head more mm-hmm. than you did. So I think you've got to learn to cope with rejection and rejection – some people interpret as failure. And uh, I would say I would give a talk on how to turn failure into something positive. Failure is is a necessary component of success because mm. without failure, you, you can't get to be successful. Uh, a young friend of mine once asked Richard Branson, you know, had, had he ever, because he was mentoring, Richard Branson was mentoring this, this chap, and uh, and he said uh, to Richard Branson, uh, Richard, have you ever failed in business? And uh, Richard Branson looked at him quite sort of quizzically and said, I fail every day. Um, <laughs> and to which this, this chap was totally puzzled until it was explained to him that, you know, failure is, is every failure brings you one step closer to your success. Yeah. We're all, you, you have to embrace the F word, embrace failure. And I think that... Um, a lot of people, you know, once when they fall down, they find it very difficult to pick themselves up. Yeah. Whether it's just through pride, lack through, you know, not wanting their pride to be damaged, or fear of what their friends and relatives might say about their venture or what they're doing, or whether they're economically challenged by the failure and wondering how they're going to pick themselves back up and start again. <clears throat> so I think it's, you know, failure is something we shouldn't be afraid of. It's something we should mm. embrace. Yeah, I think and, uh, you would be from our, awesome our to talk about that. Uh, you know, again, I'm just looking at this 30,000, uh, you know, commercials. You know, I'm sure there's at least maybe double rejections in that. I don't know what the exact number is. You would know better than I. But, you know, there, there's a lot in there that you could definitely uh, talk about. And what I love about that is it's it's specific to you, but it's actually universal to everybody. So that's awesome. Um, yes, yes, yeah, it is. The flip side of that the success question, we always kind of like to ask, you know, how about the greatest challenge you faced along the way? And if you don't mind sharing, how are we able to overcome that? 
Uh, ooh, I have to think about that one. Um, I think there's a lawnmower in my background here. I don't know if you can hear it. <laughs> the mm. joys of the of the garden shed studio. <laughs> yeah. Well, the biggest challenge, I think, I mean, it goes back to my biggest success, or my biggest achievement, was the 2012 Olympic Games. Mm. I was picked to do that uh, about three or four months before the Games began. Whoa. And I thought, brilliant, I'm, you know, any minute now, there's going to be a huge folder, a big file being delivered to my house, but the rules of volleyball, all the ins and outs of, of the game, and my role in it, uh, you know, the whole pack yeah. would arrive and I'd be briefed thoroughly. Um, well, imagine my surprise when a week before the Olympic Games were about to open and I was going to be live in the stadium. I had no information. Oh, whatsoever. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a challenge. Uh, I had to spend a week literally searching the rules of volleyball on the wow. internet and viewing as many games on YouTube as I could. I mean, it's not a complicated game, let's face it. It's, you know, it's passing a ball over a net. Sure. But there are sort of quirks and sort of things that you need to know about. So I tried to make as many notes as I could and, <laughs> and get through it as best I could. And then I got to the actual Olympic Games and um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Nice. I, I was fine. Uh, I... Uh, I remember one because we had we we played games into the evening, and, and the the evening audience was very different to the daytime audience, mm. mainly because they were most mostly because they were they were drunk when they came in. <laughs> <laughs> city boys from the city coming down to watch the volleyball, sure. you can imagine. And um, I remember saying to them one night, one evening, I used to make stuff up on the spur of the moment. I said to them, "Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very important announcement." And the, you can hear the crowd going, "Oh, what's he going to say?" And then I'd say. Um, as you know, uh, here we are in Horse Guards Parade, and right over there on the right-hand side to the east of me is number 10 Downing Street, the home of the British Prime Minister, Mr. David Cameron. <laughs> and um, there's a murmur in the crowd, you know, wondering what I'm going to say next. And I said, Mr. Cameron has asked me to ask you if you could possibly uh, uh, bear this in mind that he has a meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister in the morning, first thing, and he would like to get some sleep, so please, can you all now keep the noise down? <laughs> well, you, you can imagine what happened next. They all went nuts! <laughs> so much so that he, uh, Cameron heard it and wrote to Sebastian Coe and said, will you ask that man to stop saying that? <laughs> <laughs> of, course, of course I did it again. That's so day. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's it is a, it's physically demanding doing something like that as well. I think that's what took me down. Well, the public speaking is. rabbit hole is there, there's something about the energy outputs very different. Well, I was talking. We were there were two two announcers on the team. We flip flopped. We did shifts, and we were talking for six hours at a time, nonstop. And I, after day two, both of us began to lose our voices Whoa. because uh, so I was on immediate after I finished work, immediate vocal rest. You know, gargling with honey and lemon, just taking lots of water and just trying to keep a lid on that uh, losing your voice because that's that would have been a disaster. Uh, yeah, would have been awful. Um, second last question, Peter. It's one we always ask people. It's very simply: if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a coffee or out for a pint, who would you take, and where would you take them? Uh, oh, uh, oh, right, out for a pint. I go to the Crown Bar in Belfast with uh, Liam Neeson, and. Um, one specific reason, and I'll tell you, it's a rather funny story. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I think when I was still at school, my my uh, my mother's sister, my aunt, was the stage manager at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, mm. and uh, uh, as such, uh, she was she very kindly used to frequently get, get us tickets to go and see shows. And eventually, when I was old enough uh, and expressed an interest in acting and the arts, she got me a small part as a spear carrier in a production of uh, Joan, Joan of Arc <laughs> awesome. at the uh, Lyric Theatre in Belfast. And in the cast was uh, none other than uh, Mr. Liam Neeson. Yo. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was. He was just one of the one of the, one of the, one yeah. of the, uh, the production uh, team at that time. He was on the, uh, on the rolling cast. And um, after one of these shows, I remember my uh, uh, Liam came up to my aunt and said, uh, oh, Dorothy, um, I'm thinking of going to London, London to seek my fame and fortune. What do you think of that? And she said, uh, Liam, look at you. You're six foot eight tall and you're, uh, you're, you'll never get a part in it. You'll, you'll, you'll die a death in London. Stay Is in he London. actually that tall? Is he like a tall guy? 
Very tall, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And uh, she said, catch yourself on. So (laughs) he said, um, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. But what I do know is that you're very, very wrong. And he left. And uh, he left Northern Ireland and never came back. And um, so it was the equivalent of turning down the Beatles, you know. Totally, uh, yeah. Well, maybe that was like the thing that spurred him on. You know, he needed to prove her wrong. (laughs) Probably did. So, yeah, I take Liam out for a pint and tell him that story. And I'm sure we'd have so many stories of our old days in the Lyric Theatre and all the people we work with. We'd have a great, great old time of it. That's so awesome. Peter, final question, and it's the question we've ended every single one of these interviews with, and it's very simply this. It's the ultimate interview cliche, but I just can't help myself. It's it's my favorite, and it's if we could, you know, go back in time, turn your recording studio into some sort of a, a funky time machine and go back to, we'll go, we'll change it slightly for you. We'll say a 17-year-old Peter Dixon who's just about to, to go on air for the first time. Yet if you had a few minutes of his time, what sort of things would you say to him? I don't do it. <laughs> no, no good will come of it, and uh, and it'll be a it'll be a, a lifetime. No, I, I'm only kidding. I would say, um, yeah, look, uh, if you're going on air for the first time, and this is very difficult for anybody age seventeen to understand, even somebody age twenty five to understand. I would say, and it's the only bit of advice you need is, and it's quite simple, be yourself. And at 17, you have no idea who yourself is because you're still working that out. In fact, I know some people in their 50s who are still working out who they are. Sure. But, but it's more difficult when you're younger because you're trying to work out where you fit in in the world. What, who do I model myself on? Who are my heroes? Who are my, my, my mentors? Who am I going to be like? Uh, what am I like? And at 17, that's impossible mm. to know. And so... Be try to be your as much as yourself as you can be, because the more of you that shows up in your vocal performance, the more you'll get hired, and um, that's as true as it is today as it ever was. And I think just be yourself. Incredible, Peter. Thank you so so much for your time. I really enjoyed that, and I really appreciate you sharing everything you did. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it immensely too. It's, it's really nice to be asked, and thank you for asking me. Incredible. And thank you very much for listening. Singular, talking directly to the listener right now, as I've picked up in my notes. Uh, I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Hope you really enjoyed finding out more about Peter's story. I know I certainly did. And if you'd like to find out and discover over 100 incredible interviews with interesting people from Northern Ireland, you can head to bestofbelfast.org. But other than that, just want to say thanks once again. And Peter, thank you once again for uh, giving up your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca, creative at Lines and Current, an online jewellery and accessories brand. And I live in East Belfast with my husband, John, who also works on our business with me and our three kids. I like listening to the Best of Belfast podcast because I really love to hear the nitty gritty stuff that comes with those types of unfiltered conversations that Matt has with his local guests. I'd say my favourite episode was probably that one with Grace Chambers, the 91-year-old parkrun record holder. I think for us, um, we really like what Matt is doing and we've loved supporting what he's doing. Um, He seems to just be shining a light on the Northern Irish people, community and exposing all those untold stories. So yeah, if you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and you'd miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't there, I recommend you consider joining today. You can do so over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to seeing you in the WhatsApp group soon.